Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook had said the FBI uh, had warned him about that story. So I thought maybe those warnings would, would be on paper with Twitter. Maybe there were emails about that. Yeah. That was really all I was hoping to, to find. Uh-huh. We never found that with that story, but then we found something much crazier later, which was a, a very elaborate system where the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, like all these different agencies were sending mass requests to um, get people off Twitter, to de-amplify different groups, and they had a system worked out for this. And so we published that, and there was a lot of blowback. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Matt Taibbi, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. We're at uh, the Freedom Fest here in Memphis, Tennessee, um, with a lot of freedom advocates, Mm -hmm. and really excited to have you on as one of the most important journalists in recent history. I don't know about that, but Uh, thank you. (laughs) So by way of quick introduction, You've done a lot of work on the great financial crisis in 2008, and then more recently on the Twitter files, and you are the editor of Mm Racket.News. Maybe we could just start there with the Twitter files. What are the Twitter files? (laughs) What were you expecting to find versus what you actually found, and what has been the impact of of all of this? Yeah, so when uh, Elon Musk bought 
Twitter, um, there started to be a rumor in journalistic circles that he was maybe going to open up the internal communications of the old company. Uh, and when I heard that rumor, I got really excited. I, I wrote a column saying if he did that, you know, he'd be a, an American folk hero yeah. because there were probably lots of secrets in there about censorship and other things. Um, and eventually they, the company invited me to come to San Francisco and they did indeed have a plan to release, um, internal communications. So I went into it with very limited um, ambitions. I thought maybe we might find out something about, for instance, what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop story. Um, if you remember, you know, the New York Post did an expose and it was blocked by Twitter and Facebook. Oh, I didn't know and, that. Yeah. And um, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook had said the FBI uh, had warned him about that story. So I thought maybe those warnings would, would be on paper with Twitter. Maybe there were emails about that. Yeah. That was really all I was hoping to, to find. Uh -huh. We never found that with that story, but then we found something much crazier later, which was a, a very elaborate system where the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, like all these different agencies were sending mass requests to um, get people off Twitter, to deamplify different groups, and they had a system worked out for this. And so we published that, and there was a lot of blowback uh, about that, and I ended up testifying in Congress about it. Um, it's been, you know, it, this, this, is, this started in December of last year, and it's been really crazy ever since then. Wow. So is that the first formal... Uh, depiction of of the state actually manipulating social media at least in the u.s to that degree was that what was such a, a breakout yeah I, I, I think so i think before the twitter files the companies didn't even admit they did things like right. shadow banning right 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 and we found that on the first day we yeah. found you know they had a whole program they called visibility filtering yeah um that allowed them to dial people down all the way down to zero. But when, when we started to find emails that said FBI flag this, DHS flag that, uh, and then they would have a discussion about whether or not they were going to remove it. Yes, that was, you know, it was like the first concrete evidence yeah. that they were doing that kind of thing. And, um, you know, now we, we have even more, you know, most recently we found that the, the, um, the FBI was passing on requests from the Ukrainian secret services to get rid of certain people, including a Canadian journalist. So, um, wow. uh, you know, that alongside there's a, there's a lawsuit going on now called Missouri v. Biden. Uh, they found some, some of the same stuff, but there's no question anymore that they do it. Yes, definitely no question, especially with the shadow banning. Mm. Currently shadow banned. Uh, seems like it's become pretty normal. Yeah. Um, is Are this shadow ban? Shadow ban on Instagram now. We've been shadow banned on Twitter previously, which has been lifted. Um, and yeah, we don't. You don't get an explanation really. It's actually I was posting a meme. It was a meme of Greta Thunberg holding a sign. It said, "Climate change, where the weather is always your fault, and more communism is always the answer." Something like that. Uh -huh. And I posted laughing emojis, and I got fact checked. 
You got fact checked me doing a meme on a meme. So independent fact checkers determined that is not true. <laughs> See, I mean, stuff like that is crazy That's because crazy. It's satire. It's, I mean, yeah, yeah, satire or parody. But we we even found lines where they would say things like, um, you know, we're going to work with the DNC on parody accounts. I mean, the, the, there should not be censorship of parody. No, that's crazy. You know, I mean, yeah. it, there's absolutely no reason to do that. Um, Legally, definitely not. But, right. but yeah, I would say even morally, there's no... Yeah, there's, a, there's kind of like a mythological theme there, too. When the king starts to take uh, offense of, from the jester, right? When the jester's joking on the king and the king gets mad at the jester, that that's uh, it presages the fall of the kingdom. So when we start attacking the comedians or parody or satire... Not a good sign for free speech and civilization. I think that that's actually a very good point. That it's among other things a sign of weakness of the regime, yes. right? Like they, you know, that they can't take the criticism, right? They can't take jokes. Yeah. Um, you know, the, we found one of the things we found that was really weird was uh, the DNC was very upset that somebody had done a doctored video of joe biden where his tongue was like really long it was it was just silly it was like a silly image it was clearly doctored there's yeah. no way anybody could think it was real but if you have somebody wasting time yeah. doing that that means that you have a problem you know For sure yeah very just an inefficient use of human time right to censor things like that what was the degree of complicity or cooperation from twitter with these state agencies were they just like roll over immediately whatever you say they would do was there resistance was there pushback like what were the dynamics internally based on what you saw so twitter i think out of all the companies pushed back the most um their ceo at the time jack dorsey yeah. he's kind of a free speech person yeah he's a bit quiet uh -huh. too, obviously yeah. yeah and he was very uncomfortable with censoring things but at, what we found is that he was sort of increasingly out of the picture as time went on and the people who took the the lead at twitter were much more in tune with um censoring than you know than he had been uh the decision to get donald trump off twitter he was the last obstacle for them like mm -hmm. they they had to get him to a place to 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 do that and it wasn't until after j6 that that happened so um you know but the other companies were very enthusiastic about it yeah. pretty early. Wow. Was there, when you cracked this or started to publish the Twitter files, mm -hmm. talk about the Twitter files, was there backlash against you individually? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I knew going into the project that whatever we published um, was going to be denounced by the... New York Times, the Washington Post, yeah. and MSNBC, among other things, because Elon Musk had gone out of his way to choose independent journalists like me, like Barry Weiss, yeah. uh, Michael Schellenberger, and not them. So they were already mad about that. But also, I think they were determined to ignore whatever the findings were, because a lot of this was about um, you know, misbehavior by the intelligence services. Some of these these uh, groups were their best sources, right? So they 
they were very, very negative about everything that we wrote. And one of the techniques that they used was to ignore the material and go after us and make us the story. So I became, you know, involuntarily, I became like sort of a character in the news and that was not fun. Ad hominem attacks, character attacks, like what was the experience like for you? Um, it was weird. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I definitely had people from who used to be friends of mine, yeah. uh, give me a hard time. Uh, you know, there, there be, there was a whole genre on YouTube of videos sort of going after me and calling me a sellout and, you know, my career is over and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, part of what journalism is, is you have to be prepared to say unpopular things and deal with all that stuff. And, um, and later on when we had other problems, you know, like I had the IRS visit my house at one point, um, you know, that's another part of the thing. You have like, you have to deal with whatever unpleasant consequences come your way. Wow. Has it, have the tides turned now that it seems like there's been a shift in the People were very resistant to these ideas early on. Now, as we said earlier, shadow banning is like the norm. People seem to be much more aware of the prevalence of censorship. Has have have people's orientation towards you changed over no. time? No, no. They they will gradually accept the truth of things, uh-huh. but they they never stop hating you for <laughs> releasing it. I mean, a, a similar story. Um, I was one of the first reporters like mainstream reporters i was still working at rolling stone back then um who was not sure about the russiagate story yeah you know they i did a couple of pieces about it saying there's not a whole lot of evidence for this we should be careful about this this looks like the wmd thing where we have can you give us as a quick blurb on the russiagate story for those who don't know what that is so uh, you know when uh, after donald trump got elected there was a theory that he had been helped um in in his election by the russians you know that they had um hacked the dnc and released emails and that this helped his campaign and he was somehow in, in cahoots with them and colluding and there was a long investigation and and a lot of very prominent journalists were predicting that he was going to be impeached and thrown out of office after they found the evidence wow. of this but when I looked at it, I didn't really, I mean, like a lot of old school journalists, I don't really care um, what the truth of the thing is. I'm just focused on whether it is true or not. Right. And what I saw with the, those stories is that they were all sourced to these anonymous intelligence officials, and we couldn't see what they were relying on. And so, you know, I said that. Um, a lot of people didn't like it. And when I turned out to be right, it wasn't like anybody said, "Hey, Matt, we're sorry about that. <laughs> not sorry about that." They hate you even more after that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like a foible of human nature or something. It's like when the what was like uh, I think it was Julian Assange. He had sex charges against him, yes. and there was a big you know outcry about it. And then they were later dropped a right. year later or something. And then you hear nothing, right? right? So there's a weird humans have this predilection to want to attack when the thing's hot, but then if it drops later. They don't really pay attention. I don't know. Is that a weird? No, no. I mean, the Assange case is a classic example of how they deal with, um, you know, information that's negative, right? So Assange was 
releasing one huge story after another. Yeah. I mean, there was the video of war crimes in Iraq. He released the logs of how they were treating prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. He had um, the CIA's Vault 7 uh, documents. There were all kinds of crazy things that he was releasing. The government was obviously very angry. So what did they do? They the, First, they started to spread rumors about him, you know, having... Um, you know, sexually abused somebody. Uh, that case later fell apart, but it's stuck in people's minds, right? And you know, then you know, then they charged him with the Espionage Act, um, and he's going to go to jail for the rest of his life, uh, even though he what he did is really no different from what any journalist does, and that's that's pretty scary stuff. That is extremely scary. It's it reminds me of the the book propaganda where they say you can't tell people what to think, but you can tell them what to think about. And that's <laughs> that's so you just smear yeah. people or whatever allegation it is. And with the armed with the knowledge that people won't care if it's untrue later, if it's discovered to be untrue. Right. Right. Even, even after they see the evidence yeah. that it's fake, it will stick in their minds that it's, it's still in there somewhere that, you know, maybe he did it, you know. This is like the exploitation of a human cognitive software bug. Right, yeah. Like that's really yeah. weird. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Um, okay. We now call this thing J6. Mm. This is in re regards to the January 6th event. Um, could you talk a little bit about this? I actually don't know much about it. I stay very uh, agnostic to politics and mm. mainstream media. Good for so you. So I would love Good to learn you. a little bit about it from you, um, just describing what happened and then what the implications of that event were. Yeah, so January 6th, obviously there were there was a group of people who were supporters of Donald Trump who uh, thought um, that he actually won the 2020 election, that they wanted a recount. 
They were demanding this before he left office. And on January 6th, it's very confusing um, knowing exactly what happened, but somehow a huge crowd of people got inside the Capitol and, you know, the guys are dressed in skins. And all. Yeah, exactly. They're hanging out in Nancy Pelosi's office. And to some people, this was a coup attempt. And to other people, it was just like a bunch of people who were stone running loose through the Capitol. But, you know, the, my only insight into this is, came from the Twitter files because we saw um, that some of the people who had been charged with, um, uh, you know, being there, uh, some of them were charged with misdemeanors, um, like, you know, trespassing or disorderly conduct, things that you would normally get like a $50 fine for. They were getting like real sentences for this. But not only that, um, there were letters to, uh, from journalists or, and to journalists and from these sort of civil society organizations, um, to companies like PayPal and Venmo and, um, uh, you know, Visa, MasterCard, pressuring them to cut off services to anybody who was there. And wow. so this is, this is really, you know, without taking a position on what happened at, uh, sure. at the Capitol, the thing that's scary about this for me, you know, as a free speech advocate, yeah. is that you can punish somebody you know, far above what the law allows, right? Right, just by doing these these private things, and I think that's really that's terrifying. That is terrifying. So leveraging people's access to payment rails, banks, cash, etc., to stamp out opposing viewpoints, exactly, to some extent. and it's very uh, thematically similar to what happened with the Freedom Convoy in Canada, right? Exactly. Yeah, with the gives the. the Go send me, go right? fund me, whatever it was. Go yeah. fund me, yeah. go fund me. Then they went to, they moved from um, GoFundMe to another site yeah. called Give, Send, Go, I think it was. Uh, and then they did the same thing, yeah. clamped down on that. And to me, that's just, uh, um, that's a total abuse of power. That's the kind of thing you would in a third world country, right? Right. And not only that, they seized some of that money. Yeah. You know? Right. Um. And the contributors, they were freezing their bank accounts too, not even, not just the protesters. Right, yeah. right. And then some of the people who contributed in the United States, they wake up in the morning and they've got journalists knocking on their doors, right. um, you know, basically saying, hey, did you contribute to these people? We want to, sort of a public shaming campaign. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. you know, that's, that's, again, that's the kind of thing you would have found in, you know, the Soviet Union and, right. you know, the mid forties or something like that. Yeah. It's scary because we're normalizing these violations of private property to stamp out speech. And the only money that got through in the Canadian convoy, by the way, was Bitcoin. And so there's a very intimate connection between money that can't be stopped and free speech, right? Like you, money that can't be stopped, turned off, interrupted, enables dissidents to have their voice heard. And I think that's a very important point that um, it's easy to maybe watch the news and think, oh, well, they told me these protesters are bad. We needed to shut them down. Let's turn off their bank account. Maybe someone can get behind that by watching the news. But when that, to support that and have that weapon turned around on you, it's like you don't want that 
option to even exist for anyone, right? right. It's it's a it's an asymmetry that we should seek to remove. Absolutely. And this is why I think Bitcoin's super important. It's a great case study on the importance of Bitcoin and its relationship to free speech. Yeah, it's funny. I did a an interview once of a uh, a porn star. I for, I'm forgetting her. I'm blanking on her name at one point, but she was a free speech advocate because um, she was talking about how uh, you know the big porn sites, Pornhub, whatever. Yeah. They um, they can be pressured by Visa and Mastercard because that's how everybody right. you know uh, you know pays money to those those sites. And those credit card companies basically created a list of what kinds of things porn stars are committed are, are permitted to do on screen. So yeah, the, the, this actress is basically saying, "I I have Visa and Mastercard telling me, you know, what positions I can use on screen and stuff like that." If that's not crazy, like I don't know what is. Right. But that's a metaphor for. Uh, how stupid this is going to get, you know, because when you have a centralized, you know, sort of hub where they can apply pressure, um, you know, it'll start with something like porn, yes, but it'll move pretty quickly to politics and you know, the media and that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's, it's like money is one of those things that moves humans, mm. right? And so if you can control the flows or turn it off, turn off the spigot, you can it's more than a psyop in a way. It's like you can actually redirect people, the flow of human action in the world. And that is a radically, that's a power no one should have, basically. That's like, I think, I would argue it's the closest thing to absolute power you can have. And this is why on this show we talk a lot about central banking and how much of a problem it is. It's like you, no one should have that power. Yeah. And I, I've been really slow to understand this, mm-hmm. you know, because I came at it from, more from the First Amendment side of it. Yeah, I now I see it, right? Like, I think um, it is, if, you can, if you can control the transactions, uh, you can apply pressure in all sorts of ways that were previously impossible. Like, yeah. for instance, I, I know a woman who wrote a book um, that was controversial. It had to do with trans issues. Yeah. And she was basically told, you know, that she she couldn't, advertise on on some of the bigger platforms mm-hmm. uh, because the advertisers had gotten together and, and decided that they didn't want to feature her book. So now she basically has to think the next time I write something, I got it has to be something that's going to be okay with those, with those six advertisers or whatever. Self-censoring. It is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, you can't have that. Like yeah. the whole, the whole idea of free expression is to not have people like that in right. control of the content. Right. Yeah. And the, this leads down a really dark road. I think in Soviet Russia, by the end, one in three or one in four people were employed as an informant for the state. So it's like literally everyone's running around telling on everyone else about these infractions on arbitrary laws. It, you just, you, you break society's relationship with truth when you do this and it leads to decay. Yeah, it's funny. I actually have a story about that. You know, I, I lived in Russia for um, oh yeah twelve years. Yeah, so uh, I was there. I was I'm old enough to have studied in the Soviet Union, um, but I knew people who lived in Soviet times, and they would talk about when you went on vacation, uh, even if it was to some place like Bulgaria, right? In every group of three or four people, there was always one snitch. 
Uh, so if you went out walking in the city somewhere, um, somebody in the group was informing on you, right? And, you know, there are all kinds of things that everybody knew. In, in, in Russia, there are uh, apartment buildings. Um, there's always like an old lady who sits on the bench in front of the door. Uh, the bench is called the lavachka, right? That woman is informing, right? She's, who's coming out, who's having an affair with who, that kind of thing. And people got used to it, but it's totally messed up, right? Like you wouldn't want to live in that society and we're moving in that direction. Yeah. It's extremely scary. Um, hopefully we can do something about that. Okay. As if we haven't talked about enough controversial topics today, you've also been doing some work on the origin of, dare I say it, 19. Right. Um, literally afraid to say it on the show because we get smacked for it all the time. Even I know. Saying the I know. Word, it's unbelievable, right? It's just a word. Um, we all live through it. Let's be able to talk about it. What is happening there? So I was under the impression, as I mentioned to you offline, that it was already determined that this thing was, it came out of a lab, it was engineered, something like that. But you told me that, no, the official narrative is still that it was a, I think, bat to human trans. Yeah. They call it a zoonotic transfer is the way is, is the, is the official explanation. Um, yeah, we did a story, I did a story in conjunction with some other reporters about three weeks ago and the Wall Street Journal followed up right after us, uh, and just releasing what was already being circulated in Washington for about half a year already, Uh which is that, um, there were people who got sick at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, this Chinese lab in November of 2020, uh, we published the names of those researchers. Uh, so this blows up the theory that the first people who got sick, um, you know, came from this wet market in the city. That was the official explanation for a long time. Um, the intelligence community has long been circulating these reports about, uh, you know, these people, these researchers who got sick. Uh, so we did that first. There's more stuff that's going to come out soon about the, um, about some of the other scientists who came out with the theory that this was a natural origin, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, event and what they really thought early on, uh, we, you know, we have some communications about that. That's going to come out soon. Um, but you know, I think the, th- this was a classic example of, of how the media shut down an entire avenue of investigation before they knew the answer to a question, you know, like we know with, for instance, the AIDS, uh, uh, the HIV uh, virus, they were able to determine who, where the first cases were, you know, um, and they were very pretty, fairly quickly able to figure out how it happened, right? Like, uh, but they never did in this case. They never found the animal, um, you know, where the, you know, the virus was supposedly jumped from a bat to an animal to a person. They never found that animal. They never found that event. Mm. So it's, they should never have ruled out the other possibilities, but they did from the very start. And, um, you know, as you know, 
it's dangerous to talk about. You yes. know, if you if you even suggest it on YouTube, you're gonna get you're gonna get banned. Right. Um, which is crazy. Yeah. Again, you, you it, like, a, a, and even as a, you know, as a journalist with uh, a big following at a at a big newspaper like the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, you had to write in very careful language about this stuff um, to avoid getting in trouble, to avoid getting deamplified. Right. Which you know, you can't, you just can't do journalism in that situation. Yeah, it's on. It's unreal. And I, I just can't imagine the frame of mind that would want to suppress truth because that's not, it's not going to serve anyone, right? What, what did uh, Buddha, I think, said? Three things cannot remain long hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. Like, it's going to come out eventually. <laughs> right, right. The more right. you try to fight it and push it back, you're just going to hurt yourself and hurt others. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code breedlove um you mentioned too that the virus had an unusual genetic sequence something that yeah was reminiscent of something identified in a paper at university of north carolina years ago yeah the virus has this this thing in it called a furin cleavage site which uh you know is not going to mean anything to people yeah to it didn't mean anything to me when i first started right um, but when I talk to scientists, it's a very unusual feature um, that would it would be highly unlikely to appear in nature Got it. in in this particular virus uh, absent some kind of in, uh, intervention. And that's yeah. why a lot of scientists, when they saw that, um, they thought this is probably engineered for some reason. There was a um, there had been published. Uh, research about this. There had, there had been a request for funding from an American university to the Pentagon about this yeah. just before this happened. Uh, so, it, you know, again, a lot of people, when they, when they saw that, they, they immediately thought likely engineered. No, uh, that's not proof. It could sure, still happen, sure. right? You could sure. still win the lottery three times in a row, but sure. you know, yeah. um, but that's what a lot of scientists thought initially. Uh, 
from what I was told, including some of the people very high up in, in you know, some of the health agencies yeah. at the time, which who I've talked to. But the legend very quickly became that's impossible. Um, and everybody was told, no, it happened in nature. You know, we can't have any other interpretation of the data. Right. And, and you know, again, that's dangerous. Yeah, extremely dangerous. And uh, I mean, just anecdotally, having had at one point, it definitely felt engineered. Like everyone in my family had different weird symptoms. Like some people are losing their smell. Some people are tired. Some people are coughing. Some people aren't. Like it was just every other sickness we've ever had. It's like you kind of have the same symptoms, but this one was all over the the map. (laughs) So not that that means anything. I'm not making any claim, but my experience of it was it felt unnatural. Right, right. And just to add to that, one of the people I talked to was a fairly senior American health official who said the first two things we noticed about the disease were that it was highly transmissible and early on asymptomatic, which is what you would want if you were trying to spread, for instance, an aerosolized vaccine in the population. You would want it to be very transmissible and you would want people not to feel bad when they got it. Um, So to get that R squared very high, right? Yeah. Spread quickly. People don't know they have it. Right. Transmitting, trans- transmitting easily. That that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, I mentioned you offline. Matt Ridley wrote a book on this, on the origins, and then his co-author. I think you said you're doing some work with her. Yeah, she's 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 uh, Alina Chan is yeah. a is a um, a Chinese uh, scientist, bi- biologist. Mm-hmm. I think she's based in Canada. She's worked with um, sort of my partners in this thing. The, there's a site called Public. Um, and some of those folks are the people I worked with on the Twitter files. Mm-hmm. So uh, she's been consulting with them. Got it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, and you said more information is going to be coming out about that. Is there a certain place people can go to? Yeah, uh, public is probably the first place it's going to come out. Okay. The site called public um, on so- Substack. Then my site, racket.news, is going to have some stuff on it. And when is that? Uh, probably you know next week, a week after. Okay, so, so late July. Yeah. It's okay. Like Late July twenty three. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Well, we have to. We we gotta we gotta chase some things down. Make sure we're what we're looking at is true. But. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Okay. You mentioned this earlier, but I just wanted to see if there's a little bit more we can unpack there. The Missouri versus Biden ruling uh, in regard to, uh, I guess, states working with technology companies to engage in censorship. Yep. What's going on with that ruling? Um, which way? Which which way are we going down this road? Are we leading towards more censorship or less? Or where, where are we at with that? So Missouri v. Biden is a lawsuit that was filed by the attorneys general in Louisiana and Missouri uh, against internet censorship. Mm-hmm. And they basically sued 11 different federal agencies uh, and try to prevent them from communicating with companies like Google, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram um, about censorship requests. And they had uh, amazing sort of proof of this kind of interference. I mean, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was here last night. They had a letter from the White House two days after Joe Biden was inaugurated saying, um, you know, we want you to basically take care of that account ASAP uh, so that was one of the first pieces of evidence in that case. 
the judge in that case uh, did a very unusual thing and issued an order on July 4th basically barring all of these agencies from um, contacting the uh, the tech companies. Huh. So it was a sweeping order and bringing all of this to a halt. The Biden administration, however, has just uh, filed an emergency stay so they can go back to censoring people as quickly as possible. But this is a legal fight that's going to keep going on. The, the judge's ruling is very significant because, if, you know, if this keeps going, yeah. um, it, you know, it could it could end up in the Supreme Court. And um, I think, you know, likely they'll end up winning, which would be great. So it this, this is a First Amendment issue. I yes. Yeah. So the, the, the judge is, is arguing um, the, uh, an unusual interpret. It's not actually unusual. It's, I didn't really know about it. He's basically saying that there, there's a test called the significant encouragement test, which says that the government can't ask a private citizen to do something that it itself is constitutionally forbidden from doing. So he ruled that that's what the government was doing with these censorship requests and uh, said that they had to stop, that it was illegal and unconstitutional. So now there are going to be a whole bunch of other judges who are going to rule on this and... Um, but in the meantime, what's good about it is that people will learn what's happening, which is which is good. Yeah. Is there anything more important in the world today than free speech? I you know, I don't think so because I think this is this is central to the whole idea of democracy and freedom, right? There's a reason it's the first amendment in the United States, right? I think the founders understood that everything else flows from our ability to freely talk to each other and to express ourselves. But these people, you know, who are running the censorship programs, they, um, they are, have, are global in scope. They're, they are imagining that they're going to impose this kind of system that's going to be, you know, universal all around the world. You, you talk about having to be careful on YouTube. That doesn't. That's true everywhere, right? If you did this show in, you know, Zimbabwe, the same thing would be true, right? Um, that's incredibly dangerous, you know. So uh, without that, you know, you, you could end up in a situation where basically the whole world um, has to speak in code or has to speak face to face, and that's not good. Yeah, forget who said this, but it was something to the effect of we speak and think so that our ideas can go to battle and die so that our bodies don't have to. That's interesting. And like if, that. so it's like if you if you cut off that communication mechanism of free expression, then it almost inevitably leads to violence. I mean, I think that's very likely. Yeah. You know, I mean and people when they feel stifled, when they feel like they can't say what they want to say, yeah. um there's nothing that's more angering than that. Yeah. Uh that's and and by the way, th this is what judges have always recognized in America. If we take people's right to protest away, you know, the alternative is worse, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's why they have always made the bar for stopping protests very, very high. It had to be like imminent violence. Right. Know? And um, that's no longer the case. That's no longer the case. case. Yeah. 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 Wow. They're trying to expand the definition of, of, of incitement to all kinds of things that are clearly not incitement. Yeah. Wow. Mr. Taibbi, 
Thank you so much Thank for doing this. Man. Appreciate it. Uh, yep. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm at racket.news, www.racket.news. Easy enough. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Appreciate it.